Well, you know the rules of a holiday meal. No talk of religion and politics. This week, I encourage you to defy such a rule with what you are about to hear from Daniel 7. Imagine you're at the table this week and uh, you are avoiding some of the talk of the November midterms and the 2024 candidates and George Soros taking over the world, whatever. You're, you're exchanging niceties around it. You're more in, interested in the food in front of you. But at some point, as everybody is getting into those talks, you turn to your Aunt Dolores and you compliment her nice purple hair. And you say, Aunt Dolores, I'm so over this conversation. Um, would you like to know the future? And she drops her fork and says, absolutely, I'm going to the races this weekend. <laughs> now your Aunt Dolores might be hopeful you can tell her which horse to bet on, but you have something better in mind. You say, I want to tell you how the world is going to end. <laughs> I mean, that's some conversation at the dinner table now. And everybody else puts their fork down. And you are holding court. Take one last you know, bite of the pumpkin pie. Sip a little decaf coffee. And say, let me tell you how the world's going to end. And I think you should be interested in this. On two levels. And we've talked about these two levels. These two horizon lines in the book of Daniel, right? Some of you that have been with us. I've said from the beginning. There is right away these two horizon lines. There's the horizon line that we see right in front of us called man's horizon. What we see with not eyes of faith, just we see it as it is. And from the beginning of Daniel 1.1, that was it. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. And that's how we see life. Our own individual lives played out around us every single day. We see it on that line. But we have said from the beginning of Daniel, there's another horizon line beyond that. And that's the more important one. That's what God's doing in all of history. And that was right there in verse 2. Daniel sets it up. How did all this come to pass on that first horizon line of man? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's the horizon line we need to pay attention to. And so when we talk about how is the future going to go, how's it all going to end, yes, on man's horizon line, talking to your dear Aunt Dolores, you can say, hey, I am concerned about how things will end for you just as much as I'm concerned about how things will end for me. It is not senseless nor selfish to care about your end as an individual. Psalm 90, 12 tells us, exhorts us to teach us God to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because what I already said is true from Isaiah 40, the grass does wither and all men are like grass. So we should care about and be concerned for our individual futures. That's a good thing. Personal interest in your own destiny matters. But then that other horizon line far beyond it is we should also care about where civilization is going. 
the end of humanity as we know it, and not be drowned out in the talking heads of today that say it's going to end because of climate change or it's going to end because of some calamity on earth or some political power. Watch out for this country. Watch out for that guy. And you just hear that all the time and you might start actually believing it. At the very least, it makes you anxious and worried. When you think your future is held up in what we already read this morning from the psalmist in 146 that, you know, uh, I am putting my money on that prince. When the scripture says, no, we don't trust in princes or powers of this world. And on God's horizon line, we can look out and say, hey, even though we know the future of where it is headed, we can still care about our communities. And the plight of people in Ethiopia that will never see this side of heaven. Why? Because at the end of Psalm 90, the same Psalm that says you number your days, your individual days to gain a heart of wisdom ends this way in Psalm 90. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. We care about country and community. We've seen that in Daniel. He cared about what? The falsely accused pagan soothsayers. He didn't want them to be executed just because King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 was having a bad day over a bad dream. And he was fulfilling the command of Jeremiah the prophet who wrote to those in exile in Jeremiah 29 and said, seek the good of your city. It's a both and. When we talk about the future, we care about our own individual destiny and the world around us, don't we? Or do we just shrug and say, ah, God's sovereign, who cares? That's not a very compelling witness, is it? If you act like that this week at Thanksgiving, it doesn't mean you're frightened and fearful and, yeah, you're right, you know, I am really worried about. No, you can say, hey, that is something to be concerned for. And in fact, even burdened over and, and feel the brokenness of the world. But I know something about the future that Daniel's teaching me. That the God of heaven reigns. That the God of heaven rules kings and kingdoms. That the God of heaven reveals what's not known. That the God of heaven can redeem a king like Nebuchadnezzar who was lost. Or he can remove a king like Belshazzar. And you know how we summarize all that when we talk about the end? The God of heaven reigns. The God of heaven rules. The God of heaven reveals. The God of heaven redeems. The God of heaven removes. The God of heaven wins. That's what Daniel wants you to see. And he's been holding it back a little bit. Because when he assembled this wonderful letter that should be read for generations to God's people in exile. That yeah, the story was put together in Daniel 1 through 6 chronologically. But we jump in today in chapter 7. And it was a vision that he had earlier. But he wanted to save the visions of the future for the end. He wanted to show you in real time, in real life, this is what it looks like for God's people to be in exile, to be in persecution, to, to on one hand have God providentially lift you up, and the next day you might be thrown into a furnace or in a lion's den. That's what he's teaching. You can only count on God, but you can't presume upon him. But now in 7 through 12, he wants you to see the future. 
and your faith be strengthened in a different way. Daniel 1 through 6 says, faith stands on God's faithfulness in the past. But faith can also bank on God's promises for the future. And so here we are in the present, between those two things. Just like Daniel was when he was penning it. Between the past and the future, he can write to God's people and say, hang on, he's going to win in the end. And that's the same message for you today, is it not? The God of heaven wins. There's no controversy surrounding that. There's no, but what about? He wins. Daniel just put it right in front of us for us to see in one through six and now see with eyes of faith in seven to 12. So, now you can see why I didn't get to the end of what I thought I was gonna get to the end of today. Um, That's the backdrop. So let's drop in chapter one or chapter seven, verse one. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Like I said, this is going to start to be prophecy, dreams, visions of the future with a little bit of history that Daniel wants to put in verse one to show you, hey, this is reality, folks. When was the first year of Belshazzar? I thought he died at the end of chapter five. How is he back to life? No, he's not back to life. This was a vision Daniel had before chapter 5. So if you are really like, I need a chronological Bible, you got to make a new one and take chapter 7 and then put it in the white space between chapter 4 and 5 because that's when he got this vision. The first year of Belshazzar would have been around 553 B.C. But we know at the end of chapter 5 when Belshazzar dies, when God removes him from power, that's 539. So this vision in 7-1 is 14 years earlier from the end of where we've been 553 to 539 14 years later I know that's as clear as mud but here we are let's get to the dream itself Daniel has a dream visions as he lays in his bed and he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter and um again it's easy to want to like move quickly past something as What's seemingly mundane, he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. I think that's a key principle for how to look at the rest of Daniel. He wrote it down. Why? Because he wanted to remember the details of it. You have a dream lately? You forget it how quickly. You might get like the vague, big picture. Once again, I was falling. You know, or I I showed up at work and I forgot my lunch or whatever. He writes it down because he wants to remember it because the details matter. However, those of us who like to get in the weeds of all the details and, and turn that weed patch into the Amazon rainforest of prophecy and prediction, notice what it says after that. He told the sum of the matter. Those guardrails now are put in place, aren't they? He wrote it down to remember it so that we could have it. But he's trying to tell the sum of the matter. He wants you to see the forest. He wants you to walk away from this story in Daniel 1 through 12 as a whole saying, the God of heaven wins. That's the big picture. And I'm looking forward to his return. 
Yet it is the inspired word of God. Every single word of it. Even the little horn that we could start debating over who that is. That detail mattered enough to the Holy Spirit for Daniel to remember it, didn't it? So we don't uh, fall into either ditch as we drive through the rest of this story. Just discarding all the details and flattening it out. Yeah, you know, we're just looking for Jesus. You know, that's, that's the story of the Bible. No, look for Jesus. That's not doing justice to God's inspired word, but also not becoming fanatical about everything. So that's why I say the end of verse 1 has a detail that's important for us to see as how do we interpret this? So now let's get to the vision. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is the fun part for kids in the audience. My own included. Uh, your parents may have rules for how you take notes and say no doodling, no drawing. Copy, Adam, ipsissima verba, every single word he says. I'm just saying this. If there's ever a good time for some of y'all young artists in the house, Blaine, you no longer count as a young artist. You're a little bit outside of that. But your younger brother totally can do it. Baylor, start drawing. This is meant to capture your imagination. It's vivid imagery for a reason. I remember growing up around uh, Christmas holiday, I would go to, um, my pap was a volunteer fireman. We'd go to his fire hall. They'd do some kind of fire, th uh, not fire thing. That's like, that sounds like a terrible idea, Adam, for kids. Uh, you go to the fire hall, they show some movies, feed you popcorn and other junk food. And there would be a coloring contest. And you put them all up and at the end, the fireman would go by and judge and the kid that won it got more candy at the end. Hey, hey kids out there, draw something cool today, what you hear. This is how, this, this should capture your imagination. And if your parent wants to like uh, take a picture and email me it this week, maybe there'll be a reward next week. I don't know. Could be fun. Suddenly all the junior high boys are like, yes, I need a bigger platform. Because this is compelling. And you are meant to see what Daniel sees. He repeats, I saw, I saw, I saw, I looked, I looked, I looked. He wants you to see what he sees. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, look up. Whoa, this is important. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And here we have this interplay of heaven and earth. And what we need to stop and appreciate and even be encouraged by is that what is stirring up what? Is the chaos of down below stirring up the heavens or is the heavens stirring up the earth? As in, big picture stuff here, who's the one that's always ruling and reigning and calling the shots? God. The four winds of heaven is just an idea of completion, north, south, east, and west. God is the one who is acting upon what's about to be stirred up in the great sea. The sea isn't stirring itself up. It's God who's acting. It's heaven who is having an impact on what's going on on earth. Sound like the book of Daniel so far? Right out of the gates, right? All the things that were stirred up when Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to take all, all these people from Judah and, and bring them over to live here in Babylon. It was God who did it. He delivered them into his hand. It's, it's always heaven that's winning over earth. Always has, always will be. Uh, the sea has imagery in the time of Daniel throughout the scriptures associated um, with danger. 
Uh, one writer says that the, the understanding or the image of the sea at this time would be nether regions, an underworld below the surface of earth, a place of chaos, monsters, and mystery. This is not you going on your Disney cruise like, awesome, let's go. In this time, the sea wasn't a kind place to the sailor. Think of Jonah. Those guys go out there, they're in the sea, and they're getting thrown about, end up outside, or he gets thrown out of the ship. Why? Because they knew that the tumultuous sea, it says, was going to tear it apart. Or Paul in the book of Acts. When, when a tempest stirs up, you're in a bad spot if you're on the sea. And, and it is talked in the Psalms of it being a raging sea. Psalm 65, 7, talking of God's power over the sea. Who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves? And then the psalmist even equates that to humanity, the tumult of the peoples. So even Psalm 65, 7 can marry this idea of this danger and darkness and mystery of the sea, likening it to that same thing as man in his humanity in the chaos down on earth. And let's look in and see what this chaos can give birth to. What comes out of this sea? Starting with verse 3, four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. And if you know your New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, in Revelation 13, you will read in verses 1 to 3, do it on your own time this week. Just, if you had two Bibles, read Daniel 7, uh, 1 to 8, next to Revelation 13. And see the parallels, but one distinct difference you'll see that is not... Uh, apples to apples is Daniel says, I saw a vision of four great beasts coming up out of the sea. They were different from one another, whereas the vision of the beast coming out of the sea in Revelation 13 is just one. And it's kind of a chimera, a hybrid, a, a mutant of all these beasts put together. So we have to be careful in proper interpretation, scripture interpreting scripture to say, oh, bada bing, bada boom, Daniel 7, Revelation 13. But is it? Is it in the details? Take a closer look. So, here we have a picture of a chaotic humanity. Man's kings and kingdoms in chaos. And yet God of heaven is always behind the scenes directing it. So let's look at the first piece, verse 4. The first was like a lion. Like, meaning it's not exactly a lion. And had eagle's wings. It's, it's a creature. It's a beast. It's, it's not a lion in and of itself. That just said He's trying to describe something that... Now, note, Daniel would have had this imagery in his mind in the time of living in Babylon because um, when archaeologists uncovered what was Babylon in modern-day Iraq, uh, they saw these walls that had images similar to this on it. The, a picture of a lion with eagle's wings was not a crazy creation of Daniel's own imagination. Just like your dreams, you may see something and that day some image is so powerful to you that it comes back in a dream that night. Some person you talk to is in your dreams. So uh, there, there is sometimes just a simple explanation for if in his dream he, he dreams about this first beast coming out and it's a like a lion and like an eagle and then he's been looking around the kingdom and seeing the, these reliefs that are built on the walls, the Ishtar Gate, the main entryway to Babylon, it's now at a museum over in Germany. Portions of it recovered and then rebuilt. And uh, you saw some pictures up there already. That that would have been in his thinking. 
And mind you, remember, this is not 539 where it's now under Medo-Persia's rule. This is still in Daniel 2, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of that first kingdom, Babylon, the golden head. But here's the, here's the distinction that Daniel, in his wisdom as a literary genius, trained by Babylon to do this, when he puts together the story of Daniel 1-7, to he puts things together in a symmetry. So Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are symmetrical in what? These are both dreams. These are both visions of four kingdoms and those kingdoms passing away and one great kingdom to rule all of them. Here's the distinction. In Daniel 2, if you look back there, you, you only see this statue image. And it is grand and it is impressive. And it goes from a gold head to a silver chest and arms then a middle and thighs of bronze and legs of iron, and then down to the dirty feet turns into iron and clay. And that's all going to collapse on itself, and this rock, this rock that was not created by any human hands, comes up and destroys it all. And then you see this parallel in chapter 7 of four kingdoms passing away. But what could be observed from the outside of this image in chapter 2, by a king, a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar, who is so enthralled by it, what does he do? The next chapter, he builds a statue. Tells us when, when seen with just human eyes, from a pagan perspective, the vision of the future, as destructive as it can appear to a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, did not scare him in the sense that he didn't turn around and build a monument to himself. This is how the world looks at the future. They're so impressed with what man can do. Then you look at the, the symmetry in chapter 7, a dream about four kingdoms coming and going. And this ain't some pretty statue anymore made of impressive materials. These are beastly, gross creatures who only exist for more power driven by their pride. And who has to see that dream and vision? Not a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar, a godly man like Daniel. Similar dreams, but telling it from two different perspectives. Nebuchadnezzar can see it from this side like the world always sees it and says, isn't that kingdom great? Look at the good it can do. We should really get behind it. Let's be like Switzerland. I mean, I hear the chocolate's really nice. But we see the kingdom from Daniel's side. And kingdom come and kingdom go. And kings, and they rise up and they're destroyed. And Daniel's vision tells a totally different story. This thing is like creatures we see, but they're beasts. This is the best man can do in his wisdom and might and his power is create some type of mutants that like to bring mutiny. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? Looking to the heavens and saying, let's cast off the fetters of God and overthrow his kingdom. And the God of heaven sits and laughs. This is the contrast that Daniel's trying to help us see in the symmetry between chapter 2 and chapter 7 with eyes of faith. Both are telling the same story. Back to Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Or Nebuchadnezzar coming to the realization that there is only one true God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. And 
Verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's the same moral of the story, but which side do you want to see it from? Oh, the impressive, look what man can build. Look at our Babel. Which, like Babylon, is nothing now. It's gone, it's erased. Or you could see it from Daniel's side and call it for what it is. Why don't we trust in princes and their power? Because this is the best that they can do. So this lion eagle comes and like Nebuchadnezzar, similarities here, I looked and its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. Sound like Nebuchadnezzar's rise and fall? Here was this great king Nebuchadnezzar. Lion, eagle, the two most powerful by land and by air, predators. Don't think of like, you know, small little eagles and, you know, standing, you know, saluting. No, think of like the bird of prey eagle that just can come down and, and, and pick up a baby elephant, I think. So you have this great, powerful king, and what is he? He's humbled. Wings were plucked off. But then being humbled, he's finally humanized. He was lifted up from the ground, and he's no longer a beast. He's made to stand on two feet like a man. And something changes on the inside of him. He's not just standing up again. He's just not restored to his position. The mind of a man was given to it. What did Nebuchadnezzar say about himself in chapter 4? At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. See the exhilaration of Daniel 7, but also what could be puzzling if you just use scripture to interpret scripture, you say, hey, well, that wasn't so crazy, was it? Now, Daniel, remember this. He's, he's writing this in 553. He's, he is years removed from the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's, he's following what probably was great, great grandson married in, Belshazzar. But when I talk about faith builds on the past, it stands on the past, it's strengthened by the past, this first vision, as terrifying as it is, would have reminded Daniel of what? Just like I was told that God raises up kings and brings them down in chapter 2, verse 21, when Nebuchadnezzar was alive, I'm being reminded in this dream and vision that this, that held true. I can trust my God. I can connect who this person was to the past and have faith for the present. Do you do that? Is that your testimony to others around you? That sure, you can sit this Thanksgiving and say, hey, I can tell you the future, how it's all going to end, God wins. But what might also be a compelling witness is, is opening up and, and being transparent with that person that you love, that you want to know, that you want to come to God and say, hey, okay, now that I say I know the future, let me tell you about my humble beginnings. That my past tells a story of God's faithfulness. And maybe it's a person in your family or a friend you have that you want to come to know the Lord that you've never maybe opened up a little bit about your life and said, hey, I had a humble beginning too. I, and I still am to walk in humility, but this is what God saved me out of. This is where my story began. And when you look back to your past, does it give you encouragement to share the faith in the present? Because you really are convinced, apart from the grace of God, what do I have? 
What does John 15 say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Faith does stand upon and build upon the past. And um, I can't help but think that, you know, when you are gathered around, those, those of you who have lived longer have such a story of faith to share. So do it. Do it. Age gives you that advantage. Don't squander it. Step up. You might just be asked, you maybe you're that family member that gets asked to say the blessing before the meal. Have something more to say than just the blessing. Maybe just open it with a word of, hey, listen, I've lived some years and I just want to say before we give thanks to God for this food, I want to give thanks to him for how he's been good to me in Christ. Maybe it's just that. But have the courage to speak up because in your advanced years, you have the advantage to tell of God's faithfulness. Young people, it doesn't mean you don't have a story to tell, but man, if you have a family member, a mom or dad or grandparent that's walked with the Lord, you are blessed. Don't take that for granted. Go to them and, and ask them. If you're getting together the, this holiday and you know you have that godly grandparent you don't see very often, go and ask them how God has been faithful. Give them the opportunity to tell you and be built up by that. That was for free. So here we are looking at the Rise and fall of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. Off the scene in this vision, even though in the moment that he gets the vision, Babylon is still in control. It's the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and Babylon won't be kaput for another 14 years into the trash dump of history. Now moving on to verse five. Because just like that, this is how God moves on, right? Just like that, behold. It's, it's just always a word that says, and next we have... Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. Again, like a bear, not quite a bear. Not your Paddington bear, not your go-to-bed, snuggle with this bear. This is a bear you want to keep behind uh, bars. It, it's ferocious. It's, it's aggressive. Listen to its description. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And you're like, I like that kind of bear. I want to eat ribs with that dude. No, you don't. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. It's, it's a picture of, it's like what you look like when you're in the middle of the big bite of the turkey this week and somebody says, hey, Matt, what do you think of that? And Matt looks over and goes, huh? Like he's in the act of devouring. That's, that's this bear. This thing exists. Pure power. Pure ferocity. Um, is there some um, meaning in... It's, you know, these details. Well, like I said, Daniel records them. How far can we push on them? Well, if we're following the pattern of the statue, this moves from Babylon and gold to Medo-Persia and silver. And we do see back at the end of chapter 5 and then into 6 that Medo-Persia is the ones that came in and conquered Babylon. And even uh, the kingdom of Medo-Persia... You talk about the law of the Medes and the Persians. They're never separated from each other. So it's a two-part two kingdom. So is that uh, meant to um, relate to this bear is kind of raised up on one side. It's favoring one side. One side stronger, heavier than the other. That would be the Persians. 
The kingdom was more Persian than it was the Medes. More of the power was coming from that side than the other. Sure, what you do with that, practically speaking, zilcho. It's a cool fact. The bear, ferocious, aggressive, just like Darius the Great and Cyrus the Great and Xerxes. In the time that Medo-Persia was in control over in this region, it, it conquered a lot. It expanded upon what Babylon had started. That might even be the three ribs in its mouth. Might be. Note, might be. Why? Because uh, maps of that territory from back in that time showed that they expanded west into the modern-day Balkan Peninsula, further than the Babylonians went. And they went further into East Asia, modern-day India. And they went further south in conquering Egypt. So is that, you know, three directions, the three ribs? Could be. Could be. What you do with that again, beyond... I mean, if you are drawing this picture and you want to turn the three ribs into a mini-map that we showed up on the screen, bless you. The point is this, the last line in that verse. It was told, arise, devour much flesh. So who's in control? The creature or the creator? Even this ghastly and grotesque bear-like beast who just exists for power and persecution, and driven by pride, it's still under someone else's sovereign command. Isaiah 45.1, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand. I mean, just God deals with Cyrus the Great like a little toddler taking him by the hand. Who's in control? Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. How about Jeremiah 51.11, a contemporary of Daniel, says this about Medo-Persia overcoming Babylon. Jeremiah 51.11, sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. For it is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. Vengeance for his temple. We saw that play out, didn't we? God, the night that the temple back in Jerusalem, brought over to Babylon, and after 50 or so years, the greatest desecration of the vessels of the temple that were brought to Babylon from Jerusalem get used for a pagan party, and now God is executing his judgment of those guilty, responsible sinners through the next kingdom. You cannot outdo God on the chessboard of redemptive history. You ain't going to do it. You just sit back and watch and be amazed and exhilarated and sometimes puzzled. This is God's plan being worked out in the pagan world. Executing judgment, lifting up and bringing down. And I know I've sounded redundant in this throughout Daniel, but it keeps popping up. You think of an, an awful beast like Medo-Persia, devouring much flesh, caught with its conquered kingdoms in its teeth. And just ask the question, if God raised up a beast like Cyrus to use for his glory, who are we to worry about today? Come on. Who are you to worry about today in power? 
If these are the kings being raised up and then brought down according to the purposes and plan of Yahweh. Who are you to fear? I'm asking you honestly. If you're kept up late at night by fear and anxiety over the future of the world's powers, here's a remedy. First, turn off the cable news network. That's an easy one. That's an easy one. Just stop it and you won't be faced by it. In the parts of you that still might be left anxious and worried, fill the vacuum of that which you have now put out. Fill it with something from above. That's Colossians 3 remedy, isn't it? Set your mind on things above. That, that's not some pie-in-the-sky imperative command in the New Testament. That hits ground-level faith when you take your 10-minute Bible reading and your 10 hours of watching the news a day and you put them in the balances. What's going to infect your thinking more? I love you. But man, stop it if that's the thing that wigs you out. Because that what you put in is what's going to be in your heart. And when you can look at a passage like Daniel and see these beasts, these failed kings and kingdoms come and go, and yet God can say, I take those guys by the hand to use them for my purposes. Really, who are we to fear? And simultaneously, who are we to trust in? As good as any candidate may look, as is, is, is much good as a leader might be capable of doing, we still don't put our trust in them. In them. There's a difference. You say, hey, if I got to vote between two people, I might trust one more based on what I know about them, but I'm not putting my trust in him any more than I can put it in myself. Let your penny preach to you. What's it say? In God we trust. Now we hope that the leaders we vote into power protect our pennies. We do. They can be fleeting at times. But as you see them eluding your grasp and you get worried, let that penny preach. In God we trust. So if it goes away, in God I trust. If it comes back twice over, in God I trust. We can't not see the obvious here in Daniel 7 about the fleeting nature of the most powerful people on the planet through all history. And we're only halfway through the list and I'm about out of time. But Daniel's vision is just walking you through history. I mean, just reading verses 1 through 14 today, or 1 through 9 takes us through 2,000 years, just like that. That's what it is to God who stands outside of time and over time and everyone in time. It's just the, as quick as you can read chapter 7, boom, there's history. That's what it is to God. That's the God in whom we serve. That's the God in whom we trust. Let's get back to the text. So the bear's gone. The creature bear's gone. The lion eagle bear's gone. Who, can, can, is there a more powerful beast? How about this one, verse 6? After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard. Leopards, known for their cunning and craftiness. 
hit top speeds of 60 miles an hour. The only thing you do to make that leopard more cunning and crafty and dangerous, give it some wings. Now it can fly even faster to take its prey. And so he sees this creature that is even faster, more prolific and powerful than the prior ones. And who was that? Alexander the Great, perhaps. I mean, you just watch a documentary over Thanksgiving on Alexander the Great. What will it say? Greatest military mind ever. Came into power at age 20 when his father Philip II was assassinated. Age 20, how about some of you 20-year-olds becoming in power over an entire kingdom as, as big as we just highlighted in the last one? And what does he do? He takes it even further, faster, in 12 years, conquered the known world that he could touch. Alexander the Great did. Like a leopard with wings of bird and has four heads. Could be symbolic of just the ability to see all around him the wisdom that even, again, historians look back and say Alexander the Great had, had the greatest, wisest military mind ever. Is that the four heads? You know, if you have, can look every direction, you know what's coming. Or when Alexander dies abruptly at the age of 32, of, um, not of a sword, not of an arrow, not of a spear, of an unknown illness. Who brings kings down? Still to this day, nobody knows how he died. Maybe the greatest, the goat of all time. Just done. Gets some illness, gone. And leaves his kingdom to four of his leaders. Could that be the four heads that was passed on? It could be. But notice, again, the most important thing. Dominion was given to it. How did Alexander the Great, how did, how did the, the Greek empire expand as quickly as it did and as fast as it did? Sure, you look at it from man's side, what a great man. You look at it from our side, uh, dominion was given to it. That's how he did it. God could have taken Alexander the Great out at 20 the day after he came in command. He gave him 12 years because God gives and God takes away. It's interesting, the legend around Alexander the Great's death. Um, you wouldn't expect a man that powerful and... Um, prosperous to end on a somewhat humbled note, but God's hand of power that brings suffering, brings sickness, somewhat got through to him. He told those around him when he, was, when he knew there was no reversing what was happening to him. He accepted his fate and he said, I have three requests for my funeral. The first request is that my physicians carry me. Whatever box you put me in, I want my doctors to carry me. The second one is, I want my money, my gold to be scattered in the street in front of me. And the third one is, I want my hands to hang out the sides. And um, they asked him why. And he said, um, well, it's because I want my physicians to carry me so everyone at the procession knows that when death comes, no doctor can reverse it. When it's time for someone to go, you could have the best of the best health care. In his time, I'm sure he did. And the physicians can't do anything. Second, I want my gold to be scattered out all on the streets in front of me because it's no longer mine. When I go, it goes. And it's left to whoever's going to pick it up there. And the third thing I want them to see is my empty hands because that's the way I leave. And that's the way we all leave. Sounds like someone we know, doesn't it? 
What does it gain a man? If he gains the whole world, Alexander at the time he lived gained the whole world, but loses his soul. Not saying he was converted. No evidence of that. But he at least understood that when it's over, it's over. And you could be the most powerful man on the planet and it's over for you as much as it is for the pauper. And just like that, it moves on from Alexander the Great to this last beast. And when here, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. But it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. What is verse seven giving the image of? We don't even get a creature to compare to. Notice that. This beast, this king or kingdom is so powerful, it's, it has no equivalent. It is the ultimate political and military war machine. All it can be described by is what it does. Produces terror, produces dread, crushes anything in its path. Hello, Roman Empire. Lasted the longest in its duration. Didn't really even matter who was in charge at the time, who was the next Caesar. They all had the same mission, power and expansion and proliferation. And it's disagreed over when, you know, it officially ended, but most historians would say it laps all those prior ones a good thousand years. And Western civilization even today looks back and says that was, that was where we get what we have. Now, did they borrow some from the Greeks? Yeah, and the Greeks borrowed some from the Medes and Persians. Sure, but the, the, the high point of it was Rome and Roman civilization. And yet, again, there is nothing extolling the brilliance and the wonder of a civilization. It's extolling all the worst of it. That all it can do is devour and break in pieces and crush whatever is around it. Like I said, Psalm 2, this, this corrupted chaos of some type of creature chimera, a mutation from good to bad, woven into man's soul through sin. This, my friends, this is it. This is where we're ending today. It's kind of a downer. This is the best man's power at its heights can produce. Corrupted through and through. What I found interesting was thinking about kind of this scene and trying to reconcile that we have a sovereign God over it all who's not responsible for the sin in it, but he is powerful over it. And um, I was thinking just about how this vision starts with the, with, with the sky and the sea and the wind and the waves. And said, you know, it's a lot like creation when you think about it. Four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. What's the beginning? The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, formless and void. There's nothing there except the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's perfect. And out of an overflow of the love 
and beauty and goodness and grace of our triune God. He creates it all. And what comes out of his creation in chapter one? Everything is good. And then the high point of his creation is man in the image of God. Supposed to be a glory revealer to the world. And we become a glory stealer in chapter 3. It wasn't enough. Genesis 1, 26 and 7 says that God gave dominion to man. And said subdue the earth. And have rule and reign over it. It's all for you. Multiply. It's perfect. It's exactly as it was supposed to go. Power wasn't going to corrupt. It was going to be used so that God's name would be praised to the ends of the earth. And what do we do? We turn that perfect into Daniel 7. What comes out of the sea of man's creation? Beasts, the best of them. That's how bad sin is stamped into our DNA. All, all these men that I mentioned, brilliant minds, creators, subduers, and corrupted all of them. And that's us. That's how hopeless and helpless we are. Raise your hand if you want to put your faith in a prince like that. But there's a prince of peace in verse 9. Daniel sees something beyond all this. And he looks and he sees not the tempestuous sea and the tossing and turning of waves and the beasts roaming around. He looks past man's horizon to God's horizon and he sees a throne and the ancient of days seated. An eternal God over it all and seated. Meaning nothing is out of control. But what about the beasts? What about the, what about the corruption and the chaos? Daniel sees past it to a throne in an ancient of days seated. And there's the good news for us this morning. And you got to come back next week to hear all about that side of what he sees. But here's the sneak preview. The ancient of days sees it fit to send his son, one like a son of man, to save that which has been so corrupted. That goodness and beauty and wonder of Genesis 1 and 2 that was lost in the fall, he sends his son back to redeem. That's good news. That's the gospel. And those of you that are in Christ today can hold on to that. You don't look around and deny what you see. The pain's real. The sickness is real. Death. All of it's real. We don't live with our head in the clouds, not seeing that horizon. We look past it to what? 
the ancient of days, the one who is eternal over all and in control seated, who sends his son to die for sinners. So he is the Prince of Peace for you today. Do you believe it? Do you trust him? I'm not here to convince you that you need to believe he's something that he's not yet. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You have to change. You have to ask him to change you. If you're not a child of God today, if you haven't trusted in Christ today, there's nothing in God that needs to change today. That's the most amazing thing about Jesus. The same yesterday and today and forever. You change. He'll save you. If you see him with eyes of faith. That's the gift of the gospel. It's unbelievable. How bad it is. And how good God is. In sending his son. So do you trust him? If you're in Christ today. Do you want to get saved all over again. When you hear good news like that. But if you're not in Christ today. Know there's only one on the throne. And you trusting in Christ today. Isn't you putting him on the throne. He's already there. It's a matter of your acknowledgement of it. He's already there. It's for you to bow and cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he extends his hand of grace and he saves you. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ this morning. We thank you for the wonder of your word and the wonderful things we see in it and the hope that it does bring us. As we said at the beginning, when our hope is in Christ, it purifies us. Your spirit does a work as we sit under your word right now that, that removes whatever corruption and impurity this week or this day was starting to bring upon us. And it gives us a, a fresh mind to think with and, and fresh affections in our hearts to feel and, and, and a desire to go and do your will. So we thank you, Father, for that. And we pray your grace and mercy upon the lost this morning, that their heart would turn to you. In Christ's name, amen.